that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great From the moment you're a small bambino You eat pizza, you drink vino Then they make you roly-poly You get stuffed with ravioli If your mama's a paisano You will have the world on a plate So see that you're born in Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B., Patrick O'Boyle. We are coming to you after a week-long hiatus for Memorial Day weekend, which I think we all enjoyed. Pat, I saw you were victorious in a bocce tournament during the Memorial Day weekend. Is victorious the correct word? Well, didn't you guys win? We won. Yeah, I guess victorious is the correct word. <laughs> yeah, Joey Vitale and I played as a team, and we destroyed our opposition, but, you know. Far be it for me to brag. Yeah, it looked like a lot of fun. Yeah, but I would rather be out there playing winning <laughs> than losing. I don't mind losing. Do you really don't? I'm a little competitive with certain things. With bocce, you are. Yeah, bocce, I'm very competitive. Because bocce is the ultimate Italian sport. Because the whole premise of bocce is I got to knock you out. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, what's, what's baseball? It's the ultimate American sport. It's one guy, the individual playing against a whole army, nine other people, right? He's playing against a whole army of people. So the batter gets up and it's him against the world, right? Yeah. No one on his team can really help him. Soccer is a much more, should I say socialist sport? Like it's much more like we're all into you pass the ball to me and I pass the ball to you, right? Football's really American, like kind of rough. It's, it's kind of like cooperation kind of with a hard metal feel to it. But bocce is the ultimate Italian sport because your path to victory is kind of delineated by knocking out your opposition. <laughs> it's not true. how it's, it, it's almost, I got to make sure you do poorly instead of me doing well. Does that make sense? <laughs> That's very Italian American. Like Brisk is a very, it's Italian. Brisk is a very Italian game. How so? The card game Brisk, because Brisk is all about secret signals. It's all about like bluffing and lying. It's like the ultimate Italian political. You want to stay Italian politics, you got to play Brisk. That's true. Then it all makes sense. That is really true. It's like anything goes. You really can't cheat in Brisk. It's very hard to cheat in Brisk. Brisk, although some people call it different things. But, no, I really do love bocce. My mo- I had this conversation with my mother. I mean, I was a little chunky, fat kid in Villa Roma in the 1980s, and my, my weight allowed me to throw strong balls. Like, they, they had force behind them. And that's how I was able to beat the other little kids. I mean, I played with you two or three days ago. You you are very, very good, and I, I learned a lot playing with you. So I take it seriously. It means a lot. It means a lot to me. Yeah, you're a good teacher. I learned. I'm not an athletic person, but that was the only sport I was really good at, ever good at. But it's the only one I enjoyed either. I never baseball to me. It's me against the world. Yeah, and Bocce's conversational. It's social. You get to you could eat and you drink know. during it. It's not like you could a, eat yeah, and drink. Yeah. yeah, we ate and we drank. Speaking about eating and the joy of eating, I broke my diet. Over Memorial Day weekend, I took that's, a, that, that's not a diet. That's a that's a penal colony diet. That's it, like it, that's it like a, a, axe murderers get fed that stuff in prison. <laughs> well, I felt I, like I was free. Of, it's out of control. I definitely broke the diet because we were out on Long Island and I found a pizzeria 
from 1947 called Sam's. And I begged my wife. I'm like, look, we got to fit this into our time there. So we went with some friends. We had, you know, red sauce on everything, bar pie pizza. I was in heaven. It was like it was like coming out of prison. You're absolutely right because I've been eating basically tuna and celery for like 40 days. And then I got this pizza with all the extra cheese on it and, you know, veal parmigiana and baked clams. That whole month is gone. gone. All your suffering, you blew <laughs> in one night. Yeah, Just so you know, all the crankiness, walking around. He was walking around with these tuna cans. I'm not making this up. Yeah, it was well you, worth you, you could have fr- freed all the souls in purgatory with that suffering. <laughs> you could have opened up the gates. They would have been flying out. Like, you could have, I don't know. I mean, how, how could I not have gone out and had, like, a little bit of fun for Memorial Day weekend? And, you know, it's, I'm noticing, like, we, you know, we post stuff online and you get people who react to wishes for a happy Memorial Day weekend. There's, like, a whole kind of conversation now about how do you, how do you acknowledge the holiday? Do you wish a happy weekend? It's it's supposed to be a. I think they should move it back to May 30th, Decoration Day. And is that what it was? Yeah, I mean, economically, it would hurt people in the travel industry and stuff like that. But I think when it fell in the middle of the week and you didn't make it into a holiday, it became an actual day to remember dead veterans. Yeah. I mean, people who were killed in battle. Yeah. I think when you had a a living generation of people who had lost siblings in war, children in war, yeah, you you didn't need to remind them what it was about. But I think now as we become more and more removed from that, the hundreds of thousands that died – in war have just been, you know, in, in the prime of their life, in the flower of their life, 16, 17, 18, 19-year-old kids, especially the Civil War, what it's based on. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I was thinking about it a lot this weekend because the guest that we have coming on today is actually working tirelessly to preserve what's left of some of those voices in an important episode in Italian-American history, that greatest generation of Italian-Americans who not only were the most represented ethnic group in the country in terms of our fighting forces overseas, but also, unfortunately, countless Italian-Americans who were interred and whose civil liberties were imposed upon during that time as enemy aliens. And it's a chapter that really didn't come out until, I guess, the 80s and 90s, and there's been a lot of fantastic work written on it and, and, and great conversations around it in the Italian-American community. But this idea of the Italian internment is one that unfortunately still needs more exposure and still needs more discussion. And today we are joined by a guest who built his career on the hit NBC show ER at Warner Brothers and later produced the independent film My Name is Jerry. He's had a career between Italy and Hollywood. He's currently living in California, third generation Italian-American, and he is the creative force behind the new film, Potentially Dangerous, which was a Russo Brothers Film Form Award winner and is about to go into production. So we're really excited to have Zach Baliva with us all the way from Hollywood, California, to talk about his film, his work, and uh, where it's going in the future. So, Zach, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really good to be here. And hey, I've learned a lot already. We're talking bocce, we're talking tuna diets, and so the time has already been valuable and, and looking forward to, uh, to the rest of the conversation. Are you a bocce, are you a bocce player? You know, I, I, I play bocce and I really enjoy it, but it sounds like I can get some tips from you because I don't have like strategy behind, you know, spin on the ball or the arm movement or something. And it sounds like you're a pro, so I need some tips. No, I, I got no booga bonds. That's the cool thing. <laughs> you guys, you're from California. Low fat milk, low fat, <laughs> low fat regard, low fat. You need fatty milk. You need like okay, low okay, fat regard. Okay. 
Then you put Nubuga Barnes. That's why I wouldn't take John on my team. That's why we got John. <laughs> He's not on my team. He's on this, this tan death march diet, right? Who mm-hmm. he did not have the heft behind to throw those balls. Yeah. It's true. I was much weaker than you. You want to play with me, John, 30, 40 pounds. You got to make it <laughs> If not, you're going to go in the lightweight competition. It is definitely a difference in California, New York, and New Jersey about how we eat. Zach, did you grow up in California? I did not. I grew up in, in the Midwest in uh, central Illinois and Springfield, went to school in Chicago, and then came out here in about 2003, started working at Warner Brothers and have kind of moved all over the place. I've lived and worked in Italy, lived in Rome, lived in Venice, now back uh, in Southern California. So moved around a lot, but grew up in the Midwest, had that connection to the hill, you know, taking trips from Springfield, Illinois to St. Louis to get our, our little Italy fix, you know. Where did your family arrive when they came here? So family arrived kind of in the New York area, sort of near Rochester and, you know, slowly made its way this way. Family from Abruzzo originally and a long story there. But yeah, kind of eventually settled in central Illinois, which is where I've called home. So you really moved out to California basically for the business, for filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. So I studied, you know, film production, TV writing uh, when I was in Chicago and really had that dream, right, of coming to California and breaking into the industry and really got pretty fortunate kind of knowing some friends who knew friends who were moving on to other positions, got an interview right after I moved out here. I delivered Christmas gifts on the Disney lot as a temporary job for like a week and then got an offer to work for a prolific producer named John Wells, who is really known in the industry. He's created some hit shows right now, Shameless and Animal Kingdom. But back in the day when I broke in, he was doing ER and West Wing and Third Watch. And so I started my career working for the writers and producers of ER. And it was such a great opportunity for me because, of course, that was such a successful show. I worked on it the last five seasons of a 15-season run. And so I really got to go around and learn from the writers, from the editors. If I wanted to be on set, I was on set. If I wanted to be in the production office, I was in the production office. And whatever phase the writers and producers and directors I was assisting were involved in, I was involved in that part of the production. So it was a really great way to learn physical production from these experts and develop my skills that I've been able to take on and do other projects. And um, left to produce an independent film called My Name is Jerry, which stars Doug Jones. He's um, a big monster actor. You've seen him in a million things. He was the pale a monster in Pan's Labyrinth, the, the fish monster in The Shape of Water. And this was one of his first roles as an actual human being. So I think that was exciting for him. And then we gave Steven Yeun uh, his first on-screen role in a film. And of course, he was nominated for Best Actor this year and uh, really excited to see him continue to do some great things. But yeah, it's been fun. And then getting involved in in Italian-American stories and and different things along the way, just based on kind of my life, right? Based on being an Italian-American and going through the dual citizenship process myself, wanting to get more into stories that kind of highlight some of that experience. And how did you come to the idea for Potentially Dangerous? Because like I say in the introduction, You're one of the grant recipients from the Russo Brothers Film Forum, which is a project that I'm very proud to say was begun during my tenure at the National Italian American Foundation between the Italian Sons and Daughters of America and the Russo family and the National Italian American Foundation. And it's become a great success. I mean, the amount of traffic that it gets, the wonderful projects that are applying to this thing, and it's obviously very competitive and very selective. Was this idea something that you had beforehand? Was it inspired by the film forum? How did you come to this important story that you're going to tell? It was kind of a, a perfect storm of all these events. I mean, of course, people with my background working in the film industry are very aware of and look up to and respect the Russo brothers, right? So I've been aware of the film forum 
for a long time and have kind of always thought it would be great to find a project that really fits what they're looking for. And I've worked in different ways. I've been part of digital marketing teams. I've worked as a journalist and done a few different things in my career. And the common thread is this desire to tell a really good story, right? Whether I've worked in journalism or marketing or mainstream film and TV, working as a storyteller has been kind of that connective tissue. And so I had this in mind, this goal of submitting something that would be accepted to the film forum. And I came across this unknown piece of history in the wartime experience of Italian immigrants during World War II. And I started looking into it and and reading about loss of civil liberties and the restrictions that they were placed under. And even having gone through the dual citizenship process, I was unaware of these things. And I thought, wow, maybe I'm really naive or maybe everybody else already knows this and it's been told a million times. And as I started to ask other people, they were surprised at what I was describing to them. But the piece that really cemented it for me was I saw a headline or a piece in an article that talked about Italians being held at Ellis Island as internees, being detained there. And for me, it was such this interesting juxtaposition, right? Because we think of the Statue of Liberty and as Ellis Island of like these beacons of hope and freedom. And and in our minds, we have, you know, people on the boats coming to America. And when they reach Ellis Island, they've made it, right? And to think that not so many years later, this is being used as a station to detain people during this wartime hysteria. That was kind of the moment where I thought, all right, this is something to explore. I think you're out of your mind. (laughs) Well, let's hear it, Pat. I I, I can't keep my mouth. I'm going berserker. (laughs) Okay. In in what way? Tell tell me. The, The Italian community totally supported Mussolini before the war. I don't hold it against WASP Anglo-Saxon America. I, and I, I don't mean to jump off because I just explode because that's who I am. I'm crazy. You picked that up already. I'm going to tell you a childhood story. All right. I have in my possession my great uncle's enemy alien papers that he had to carry around with him. So I am talking as someone whose family had enemy alien paperwork. So I'm going to be all over the place with this, but I'm going to tell you my experience and then you just jump in. So I'm from New Jersey. Just plow right over because I'll just keep talking. Go for it. Jersey City was so pro Mussolini. I'm going to tell you a childhood story. My, I'm at, it's a Thanksgiving. I'm like eight, nine, 10 years old. And my aunt, my grandma's sister, and they, were ve- I, they could not have been any closer to me than, than you could imagine. They were like other grandmothers to me. My aunt goes to me. You know, she told me all the great things that Mussolini had done. And then she goes, you know what happened? Mussolini got involved with Hitler and Hitler got Mussolini in all kinds of trouble. And the moral of the story is pay attention to Mussolini. He was a great man who got involved with a wrong crowd and that ruined everything in his life. So be careful the friends you choose in life. I went to grammar school thinking that Mussolini was fantastic. Mussolini was a great guy. Jersey City was a complete hotbed of pro-fascist activity. Jersey City was so fascist. They had a school, a fascist school. There was an Italian Catholic school for the parish, and there was a fascista school. It's now Casa Colombe. The building is still there. The kids wore wore little Mussolini outfits, black shirts and brown pants. I was in Rome in the 1990s with with the choir of Queen of Peace Parish in North Arlington, which was like... They call it uh, Uptown Jersey City, like a suburb of Jersey City. And there was a couple there. One of them had gone to the Mussolini school in the 30s. We were in Piazza Venezia. He sees the balcony where Mussolini made his speeches. He turns around. He faces this. He gives the Hitler salute, and he sings Giovinezza because he was taught Giovinezza in, in school. And he said, I've been waiting my – as he did it as a joke. He goes, I've been waiting my whole life to do that. 
Because in Jersey City, the kids were taught to sing Giovinezza with their hands up. In Newark, New Jersey, when Italy invaded Ethiopia, when the Italians won in Ethiopia, they had a parade through the first ward. St. Lucy's rang their church bells, which was the predominant Italian parish, and they had like mockings of, of the Ethiopians, the Abyssinians, right? Up in Villa Walsh, and I love the Filipino sisters, and, and Mussolini did a lot for the church in Italy. I'm, it's a complicated history at the Filipini mother house that had fundraisers for Mussolini. My grandmother's cousins in Brooklyn gave their wedding rings to support the war in Ethiopia, right? They gave their gold wedding bands. How the heck could any American not say these people might wind up rooting for the other side? It's the whole reason why Italian sons and daughters of America broke off from sons of Italy, right? There was, a, there was, there was contention in the Italian community, but the vast majority of Italian, Italian Americans supported Mussolini. I grew up with a guy, his father said to, uh, oh, I grew up with, a, he was older, he was a, a grandparent age when I was young, and he told the story about how his, um, his father told him, ah, even though I support a Mussolini, now we're in the war. Don't think about Italy. Think about yourself. Think you can fight for America. What I'm trying to say is we were a community, and I'm not condemning anybody. My own family sent wedding rings to help Duce. We were a pro-fascist, pro-Mussolini community. The Americans were nice to us. I, I don't blame them. How, how could we go and justify we supported this dictator who went against the United States? I don't blame them for being in a panic. And I got more stuff to tell, but I know I'm running off and you're polite, so you, you, don't, want, you don't want to jump in yet, but go ahead. You're good, Pat. You know, it's a complex and complicated topic, and that's why the documentary is titled Potentially Dangerous, because we're asking the question, what kind of nation do we want to be, whether it's in the wartime around World War II, whether it's after the attacks of September 11th, or whether it's modern day? Do we want to be a nation that allows these complex issues to take us to a place of hysteria, where we're taking civil liberties away from people, not because of anything that they've done, but of where they're from. In this instance, it's right for the government, of course, to express appropriate concern. And we interview people in our documentary who say, my parents should have completed the naturalization process. They wouldn't have been in the situation they were in. We understand that the government needs to be cautious. But when you're taking, in some cases, elderly people, forcing them out of their homes, putting hundreds of thousands of people under surveillance, curfew, taking away possessions, interning them based on this hysteria, what kind of nation do we want to have? It's a complicated and complex question that we're asking in this documentary. We're not saying that all of the concerns that you've expressed in some of the uh, things that the United States did, uh, you know, we're, we're not saying that everything is right or wrong. There is some gray in there for sure. And the people that we interview in this documentary even express that. Zach, I know Pat's passionate about this topic. We've talked about it on a couple of episodes before, particularly our Italian-American history uh, four-part series many years ago. But before we get into the delicacies of this era in American history, can you give us the sort of 10,000-foot view of exactly what happened? Because I think a lot of our audience probably is somewhat aware of the idea that Italians were interred during the war, but there's a lot of misconceptions and some specifics would be good. So, you know, you've obviously built the outline here for this film. Frame the situation for us a little bit. Right. Well, the situation is, I mean, leading up to the war, as you mentioned, Italian-Americans, largest immigrant group living in the United States, and then they're kind of living what they consider their new American dream, right? And then Pearl Harbor happens, and all of a sudden there's this pressure on the United States government to respond, to protect the nation, to keep us safe as America inch inches closer 
to war, of course, the war decree coming several days later, before even that decree, there were Italians who were arrested and, and went through some of these uh, circumstances. But some of the details are during this time and immediately after Pearl Harbor, there were 600,000 Italians or Italian-Americans who were placed under strict surveillance, 50,000 under nightly curfews, 10,000 evacuated from their homes primarily on the West Coast, and hundreds were held in military camps, places like Ellis Island as well, without trial, without representation, without their families knowing what was going to happen to them. And so, and then they would be let go after a certain amount of time. Some people were held there for, for multiple years. They were enemy aliens, but these circumstances based on only suspicion alone and not on anything they had actually done. They were not accused of a crime. They were not convicted of a crime. They were not charged with a crime. They were not permitted to defend themselves in any formal way. They stood in Newark and applauded as pro-Moose, and everybody did it. And, and I, don't take, I'm from New Jersey. I know everybody thinks I'm, I'm rude. I'm not, it's nothing personal. It's just, I, I love these discussions. What I'm trying to say is that we had a community that cooperated. But Pat, this is like saying every Muslim in the United States applauded when the buildings came down on September 11th, and we should round them all up and put them in jail. That is not a fair analysis. Why is it not? Because the Muslim comparison, I feel, is very unfair. Because I feel that we have never, as a community, come to terms with the fact that we supported so many things. And then now, the Italian-Americans were the largest contingents of soldiers in the, first, in the Second World War. Am I correct, John? Yes. Italian-Americans. John Bazalone, and we did fantastic stuff. I had a huge amount of family that fought in the Second World War. My uncle came home with Purple Hearts. We made an about-face, and we supported the United States. But I'm still hearing in the 1980s that Mussolini was a great guy who got involved with the wrong crap. But what I'm saying is, if you take an America that is not used to a multicultural society, because you have the Great Migration, the people who came in the Great Migration are still middle-aged, right? They're in their 60s and their 50s. You have a a WASP Anglo-Saxon community who doesn't understand why Italians are so in love with a dictator. See that you have people who live in ethnic enclaves, who only speak Italian, who read Italian newspapers that are supporting Mussolini, These Americans at that time did the best they could do under the circumstances. We are coming back from a 1990s when this started, or 2021 opinion going back. The the, the wasps were terrible people. How dare they do this? They did the best they could. If my name was like uh, John Smith and I was some uh, Presbyterian living in Kansas and I saw this, any sane person would say, we have no reason to know if their loyalties will be with the U.S. or with Italy and fascist Italy that they're parading around. That is a very legitimate doubt for those people to have. And, we're, and I'm talking for the WASP crowd. I'm talking against my own aunt, my family who had enemy alien paperwork. I cannot blame those people for saying we don't know if we can trust them. Now, after the war, we proved our loyalty to the United States. That's different. We showed the, a multi-ethnic nation based on the concept of a constitution, which the U.S. is. We're not a nation of, based on ethnicity. We proved that when push came to sub, we supported American democratic values, 100%. But we didn't show that. We weren't flying that flag in the 30s. Some Italian-Americans were, but we had whole communities that were putting a dulce. That's why I go nutso. But this is a great conversation. I love this conversation. I mean, we can discuss whether or not 120,000 Japanese should have been interned during World War II. We can talk about whether we want to be the kind of nation that has 600,000 Italians or Italian-Americans placed under strict surveillance during the war. We can talk about what kind of nation we want to be. And that's what this documentary is looking into. You know, in the own, our own government that did this, when they wrote their reports, what they found is, and I quote, there hasn't been any indication 
that any of these enemy aliens were engaged in any treasonous activities whatsoever. So if you're saying that they all supported Mussolini, they didn't all act upon their support of Mussolini. The government placed these strict restrictions on the Italian community. There is no evidence that any of those restrictions is helpful. And the piece that we're losing in the way the conversation is going is that's not the full scope of the documentary. The more important piece that the documentary is examining is what are the lasting impacts on Italian-American culture? How did this damage the culture as a whole? What did we lose as Italian-Americans because of the trauma that Italian-Americans experienced during World War II? To me, that's the important part of the conversation that's getting left out in kind of the back and forth uh, of the philosophical nature. And I'm saying this, when the war broke out, Italian-Americans did the right thing. They supported America. They supported democratic values. They all got on board. But I can understand the Americans being a little bit apprehensive. And we have stories of, you know, there's a woman named Rosina Trovato who was classified as an enemy alien. She's living in Monterey, California. She receives a notice to evacuate her home. It's the second notice she received that day. The second notice she received was that her son and nephew, two people, had uh, gone down with USS Arizona and Pearl Harbor. So these are complex issues, right? I mean, we're recognizing that. 100% the complex. To be fair, California had it, and California also had the internment of Japanese Americans. So I, I'm going to be very, I, I think it's only, it's only fair to say that, yes, that the Japanese and the, the, the West Coast experience might have been one way, but the Jersey City, New Jersey, New York thing was a whole different ball of whack, in my opinion. And, and you know, California has some naval installations and, and other factors going on too. But, you know, when you hear the stories of people who say these experiences didn't really impact us, when you hear the opposite stories of people who were greatly impacted by these wartime experiences, it sort of splits the conversation and brings in some of that gray area and some of that nuance. You know, we're interviewing one guy who's actually from the East Coast who, who didn't know that his father was interned until after the man died. It was this family secret. Uh, his mother lived her whole life in fear, this paranoid fear that the government was still surveilling them. And this guy was detained because he had treated Italian soldiers in World War I. He was the medical doctor, so he was prevented from practicing medicine. And the amazing part of the story is when he was released, he became a psychiatrist in the Veterans Administration. So it shows you kind of <laughs> the, uh, the patriotic nature of Italian immigrants and Italian uh, Americans, right? He ended up serving the very government that interned him without representation, without trial. And I think in his case, they tried to repatriate him and he was actually interned twice. You know, these stories are amazing because you hear just how these restrictions affected different families and then what it's done to contribute to the loss of culture for the Italian American community. I want to talk about that loss of culture because I don't wholeheartedly agree with Pat on this point. You know, I grew up with grandparents who were very cautious about speaking Italian. My grandfather was a soldier in, in the Second World War, born in Italy, immigrated to the United States, ended up having to go back and fight through Italy, through his hometown, which I think was a very, um, I, I want to say, a blessing and a curse for him even throughout his life. But my grandmother, who was born in this country uh, right after her parents arrived and grew up speaking you know, Neapolitan in her home, made a concerted effort during and after the war to stop speaking Italian and wouldn't speak it to my father and his siblings and wouldn't speak it around us. I can remember going with my grandmother to a funeral in Brooklyn, back in the neighborhood, towards the end of her life when I had gone and worked in Italy and learned Italian and then learned Neapolitan. My grandfather was always comfortable speaking it. And uh, I walked up from behind to hear her and her friends speaking in beautiful, fluent Neapolitan. And I sort of sat behind her and listened and I could 
understand much of what she was saying. And at the end, I sort of leaned over to her and I said, you know, Grandma, uh, you always talk about how you don't speak this, but, and she kind of went into complete denial mode and said, no, 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 you, you know, you're hearing wrong and you don't understand. And I, 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 and and I remember kind of digging and digging and digging and eventually asking her maybe a couple of weeks later to, to recount it. And she talked about the idea of what it was like to speak Italian during the war and the idea that the language was an enemy language. And I have a sensitivity to those things. And I do think that as an immigrant community, there's an impact that comes from that. And I think the Italian-American community, as Pat's saying, is impacted as much by the investment that fascist Italy made in building a sense of diasporic community during the years leading up to the war as they are by the internment and the enemy status during the war. So I think that those two things create a very dichotomous inflection point in the Italian-American experience because if you look at Italy today, clearly the after-effect of post-fascism is a a sort of sense of moving far, far away from any kind of nationalism or uh, national patriotism and things like that. And and that has actually lasted here in the United States, in the Italian-American community, in a different way. But at the same time, we moved wholeheartedly towards assimilation, particularly around language and a lot of unique identifiers after the war. So I think that that's the moment that changed everything. And Zach, you talk about that impact. And, and what are you finding in the interviews that you've conducted and the research you've done? How do you feel this episode has impacted modern Italian-American culture? Well, these events happened, you know, 80 plus years ago, right? So a lot of the people that we're interviewing that are directly affected are in their 80s, are in their 90s. And in a lot of cases, we're talking to their children. And it's really interesting to see because whether conscious or not, I mean, some in some cases, it's a very clear decision that we were told not to speak Italian outside of the home. My parents didn't pass it on to me. I obviously didn't pass it on to my children. And the language and other parts of the culture were lost. In other cases, I think it's more of an unconscious choice or maybe a result of these things in the the community as a whole. My grandmother died when she was 102 uh, recently. I never heard her speak Italian. And whenever I asked her or tried to get her to speak Italian or tried to learn Italian and then speak it with her, she would kind of joke about it, you know, and she wouldn't say it was because of the wartime experience that I'm not passing down the language to my family. But I think as a whole, we did see that happen, certainly. And, you know, we interview people in this documentary that say because of this trauma, we didn't want to seem Italian. We wanted to seem as American as possible. And I think what we're finding is that immigrants in this country had a choice. I mean, the United States government clearly expected them to completely sever ties with their homeland. And so they were kind of caught in this dilemma. And then when you think of Italian customs and, you know, the way Italians look at citizenship and loyalty, they don't have that same expectation. You know, it's not the legal ties that they're concerned about. It's more the cultural ties. So I think the Italians in America really felt this dilemma of we'd like to maintain our culture, but we're under this pressure to feel more American. And so they sort of chose to forget in some ways in that pressure to seem more American. Well, we'll just drop the Italian part from the Italian American, not totally, but at least to an extent. And we're exploring this as we shoot the documentary. We've done a lot of pre-interviews. We're going into production on June 11th. But I think a lot of what we're finding is what we're left with is this more stereotypical characterization of what it means to be Italian or Italian-American. And had some of these things not happened, I think we would see a more rich and full tapestry of the cultural expression in the United States. Zach, can I ask you a very important question? I, I would love it, Pat. Your grandmother died at 102? Yeah. Did she ever eat skim milk rigotto? 
I was going to say it was a complete oh. diet of nothing but tuna and celery. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Zach, let me ask you something. I'm going to ask you this for a serious reason. How old do you feel? Why me asking? Uh, almost 40. All right. You're in the same ballpark as me. I'm 46. I had friends that grew up with Mussolini paraphernalia that grandpa had. Ashtrays. Pictures. Oh, grandpa got Jovi Nets on a 45. Shh, don't tell anybody. And the reason I'm saying this is that I don't feel the Americans overreacted, and I'll tell you why. Because you can probably saying this is just this loudmouth, ignorant person from New Jersey. I can only imagine what's going through your mind right now, like the New Jersey cafon. But let me tell you intellectually why I support this. America's an experiment. America's based on a concept, right? It's a concept of, and I don't have, I cannot articulate what that concept is. We'll say constitutional meritocracy. We're a non-ethnic country, right? We're the first in history. Even if you go back to the Habsburgs or the Romans, they were empires. They were made up of little colonies of ethnicities. But they weren't a country that the ethnicity was a choice. We choose to be Americans, right? We come here with a choice. If you take the years before in the 1920s and 30s, this experiment had basically been a petri dish of wasps, right? Protestants, British Protestants, Scotch, well, kind of like Canada, right? And then you have Catholics thrown in and Southern Europeans thrown in. Now, thank God, the experiment worked out fantastically, right? So when we had the September 11th, and you want to say to the, the Muslim community, the Arabic community, September 11th, we could go back and say, no, this is wrong based on World War II. But for those Americans who came up with the camps, they had no point of reference to be able to feel confident in the sense of national security that Italian Americans would choose the concept of America over loyalty to the tribe. It was a test and we passed it. But I have to understand that they were really concerned because of our actions before the war. I don't really know if they're gonna be loyal to us. If you look through history, ethnicities, always sided with the greater ethnicity, right? In the Plains of Abraham in Canada, right? When France loses and the Quebecois left in Canada, England has a concern. How do you keep a nation within a nation that, that, that you just had a war with? So I'm trying to say is that to use a 2001 reference to go back at the interments, we're not being fair to those, the Medigan people, the people who ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Thank God the experiment worked out well for our chance, but I cannot hold it against them for being worried. It worked out well for our chance, but at what cost to the people whose civil liberties were removed? That's the question. And, you know, the government that did these things came out and said that it did not help. Let's talk a little bit about the project and, and how it's going. Tell me a little bit about what the filmmaking process looks like on this. You know, who are you interviewing? What's the project going to look like? And what's the community reaction been? So we started Potentially Dangerous in April, right, when we applied for this grant, and they have a deadline of August 31st. And so it's a pretty quick process. Some of the projects that receive funding are in different stages. Maybe they've shot things already. They're deep into research and they're finishing up. For us, this was the start. So we're pulling off an entire documentary from beginning to end over uh, just a few months. And, you know, uh, it, it's going really well so far. We have a small but mighty crew who is very experienced and telling these stories. And there are significant challenges in trying to bring potentially dangerous to life. As I mentioned, these events happened more than 80 years ago, right? So a lot of the people who are interviewing are in their 80s, they're in their 90s. And for a long part of their lives, they weren't comfortable telling their stories because there's still this associated shame with what, what's happened. Our argument is we need to gather all of these stories, hear this testimony while these people who experienced these wartime events are still with us because this is our last best chance to bring this story to life. These people are not going to be with us forever. In some cases, people that we were hoping to talk to have since passed, and we have to tell their stories now while we still can. And then you add on top of that, 
documentary filmmaking in a pandemic environment adds other layers of challenges to it involved with traveling domestically. I'm trying to go back to Italy to tell part of the story. And we're trying to get, you know, archives and different materials, photographs and videos, and a lot of the libraries, museums and historical societies that we need to interact with are kind of still closed to the public. So it's a challenging process, but we're starting production June 11th. Uh, we'll be shooting in June and July, editing in August, and hope to have something finished in the uh, beginning of September. And is this the first documentary film that you have helmed? This is my first documentary project. I mean, I've worked as a journalist before. I've uh, written interview-based articles, done more than a thousand interviews in that capacity, done several short and long format narrative projects and contributed on some documentaries. But this is the first one where I'll kind of have, have the reins as director and producer. So tell me what the reaction's been like across the community. I've, I've been following what you guys are doing on social media, on Instagram. It's potentially dangerous film for those who want to follow. And you've been putting up some really interesting stuff, some short little vignette stories about certain people that are obviously going to be featured in the film. What's the community reaction been? I know you're doing some fundraising. Tell us how that's gone. Yeah, so the reaction a lot of times is similar to mine when I knew that this is a story I wanted to tell. I mean, most people are just totally unaware of these events, right? I mean, it was more highly reported it, what happened with the Japanese community in the United States. And the Italian side of things has really been kind of an untold story. There's some, some writing on it where they call it una storia segreta, right? That this has been a story and a history that's been kept under wraps for a long time. And part of that has been, like I said, the reluctance of those who were affected to even share what happened to them. So now when we're telling other Italian Americans about this, a lot of times it's surprise and curiosity. And for the people that we're approaching, by and large, uh, 95% of them are excited because they kind of understand that, like I said, there aren't going to be many more opportunities for them to tell their stories. And so in order to do that, to kind of do the, the best job we possibly can, interview the most people, we've started a 30-day Kickstarter. We've got a couple days to go and we're nearing our funding goal. So people can help us if we fund the Kickstarter fully or if we overfund the Kickstarter, what it will mean is we can get out there and we can tell more stories and, and just do the best job we possibly can with this film, the people that are working on it. You know, I've got a largely volunteer crew and of course the grant from the Russo brothers provided some initial funding, but we really needed to round that out because of all the travel that's associated uh, with a project like this and just trying to get it to, to capture as many stories as we possibly can. Well, we're certainly going to link the Kickstarter from our show page. And, and for those of you in the audience who want to support this project and Zach and uh, the passion that he brings to it, that'll be available on our show page. So you can just find the link. You know, doing this in a time like the pandemic is is obviously, as you say, loaded with complications. You are planning to go to Italy. What's the scope of the content that you guys are looking to get over there? What's the Italian side to this? The, the Italian side, I'm hoping, will really kind of resonate with people in your audience that have a similar experience to me. You know, I went through the dual citizenship process five years ago or so to have my citizenship recognized. And when I did, I'll admit that those who are familiar with the process will probably understand it's a cumbersome, complex process. There's a lot of stress involved. It's expensive. You're gathering these documents. You make your appointment. You wait several years. You prepare. And there's this temptation to just view it as this legal process. I need to get these signatures on this document. I need to get this person to notarize that. I need to get this form from that person and get it all to the office so I can get this approved. And what was left out, at least for me, 
was that cultural piece of really learning and understanding my heritage and where my family's from. And I didn't intend to bring that into the documentary, but as we're looking through this whole sort of loss of culture question, I kind of realized that that had impacted me. You know, I didn't speak Italian when I first started going through this process because it had not been passed down to me as it had not been passed down to so many people. But let me ask you, Zach, a question, right? How much of the language loss, and I, I am going to admit that absolutely, yes, the pressure of the war, don't speak enemy's language posters had an effect. But how much also was the fact that the same reason why the dialects of the local languages are dying in Italy, because people want their kids to speak rye Italian because it's economically advantageous to them. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's the only factor that contributes to these things happening. I'm saying I think it was one and perhaps a primary factor. I think it's more a question of expedience. I think it expedited what was probably a trend. But I think that the whole sort of back and forth that you guys are having is, in my mind, an interesting one because what it represents is the idea, and I think Zach said it earlier, you know, the, the, the balance between an ethnic identity and a nation like Italy where you ostensibly have a country with borders built around an ethnic, a shared ethnicity and this Italianness, and the United States where the citizenship, the legal definition of citizenship is really the only de facto uniter of all of us, right? And it's an elective, we're an elective nationality. We choose to be American. Yeah, and, and I realized when I went to Australia, to I did some work with the Italian community in Australia, and I used the word assimilated. And some of the community leaders from the community kind of jumped down my throat about the idea of the term assimilation. They said, you know, you Americans, this is why you're, the Italian culture is, is dead in, in the United States, because you pursue assimilation and we pursue integration. And I think what we're talking about here, and I know it's a, a passionate topic for both of you guys, but I think what we're talking about is sort of the uh, moment in our community's history, certainly, and really maybe even in the greater American experiment, where that idea comes into question. What is the pathway from immigrant to participant to what's the end goal there? Is it assimilation? Is it integration? I think it's safe to say nowadays we are much more aware of the fact that the country can not only survive but thrive as a country that focuses on integration and integrating a mosaic of communities and celebrating and encouraging the distinctions between them. Now, that's that's a pie-in-the-sky assessment because obviously there are plenty of people who don't see it that way, but I, I certainly do. But then there's also the older model of assimilation where, you know, you have the Henry Fords who run a camp where you walk immigrants into a melting pot and then they change costume and they come out American, right? I mean, that was the prevailing idea was that you had to sort of give up everything and become American. And our community saw it from the 1800s on, you know, these nonprofit groups that would go into Italian communities and try to change how they ate and how they lived and how they raised their kids. But they, me they meant well. They were wrong, but they meant well. I think some of them meant well. Some of them like, yeah, you got to eat a steak. You got to, you know, they filled us up on protein. Like, oh, you're eating those green vegetables. That's for horses. Yeah. To me, I can't judge people when they do their best under bad. Life is rough. Life is tough. Life is really hard. So if you say, listen, I, I want you to eat steak and I want you to drink milk at dinner. Get rid of that wine. Have a nice steak and a glass of milk and your kids will, long, will grow up to be strong. They were wrong. They were misjointed. Our food is better anyway. But they meant well. I can't condemn those people. They meant well. I disagree with you, but I, if your heart's in the right place, I got a lot of sympathy for you. That's me. Your favorite entertainment made in Italy. 
Mediaset Italia has new dramas, addictive quiz shows, and the hottest reality TV this spring. Tune in for new seasons of Italy's favorite talent competition, Amici, the fastest quiz show around, Avanti Un Altro, celebrities marooned on an island in L'Isola dei Famosi, and don't miss new dramas airing Wednesdays starring your favorite Italian talents. DirecTV has the Italian TV you love. Get Mediaset Italia for $10 a month plus taxes, or Italian Direct Package for $20 a month plus taxes. Visit directtv.com slash mediaset, or call 1-877-912-2702 to learn more and subscribe. World Direct a la carte service requires activation of a qualifying base package. All programming subject to change. For new customers, equipment lease, activation, early termination, equipment non-return, and other charges and restrictions apply. Call 1-877-912-2702 or visit att.com for full details. I can understand where everybody's coming from, and I, I, I think there is as much work to be done to explore the internment during the war, which I agree with Zach was a, a highly overreactive and the most important point to no end decision by the United States. I mean, interestingly enough, if you talk about things like the celebration of Columbus Day, which we've talked about ad nauseum on this show, a lot of the beginning of where that holiday becomes tied to the Italian community is in the overreaction of President Roosevelt afterwards. I think that the U.S. government quickly realized that this was a futile and inappropriate response to the outbreak of war between the United States and fascist Italy. But at the same time, I think the point that Pat's making is one that is also worthy of a lot of study and and, and also understudied, the idea of what was the pre-World War to Italian-American community like and in terms of how it thought about itself because it was an era when immigrant communities were far more tied. I mean, you can talk about the German Bund and you can talk about other immigrant leagues for communities that you know nowadays are assimilated, but they were far more tied to the idea of a motherland. Up until 1924 when the law was changed, many Italian-Americans were going back and forth until the immigration quotas were put on uh, Southern Europeans. So the sense of identity and how we related to Italy, to fascist Italy, what it meant to think of yourself as an American versus a participant observer here, I think that's an area that also warrants a lot of study because I think we come out of the experience, and it's like Zach says, I do believe World War II is a complete inflection point in the Italian-American experience. I think we go into it as a people who are here in great numbers, have been up until the 20s going back and forth. I think there's all of this sense of tie to Italy and fascism and this expansion of Italy. And I think afterwards you get a much different version of uh, a community that, again, is, is really not speaking their language and is growing into the sense of an assimilated identity versus a, an outsider identity. One point I want to make is just that, you know, a very purposeful policy by the United States government kept these measures from being public for a long time, right? They didn't even acknowledge what happened for decades, 40, 50 years. And in that report from the Department of Justice, we're actually going to interview in our documentary the woman who wrote that report, uh, who is of Italian descent herself. And, And one of the things the report says is, this is a quote, the impact of the wartime experience was devastating to Italian American communities in the United States, and its effects are still being felt. So the part of the story that I'm trying to loop into that is, you know, this Department of Justice report talks about the unknown effects on the Italian American community. And for people in my generation who are, you know, 40 years old, who have had to learn the language on our own because it wasn't passed down, I think we have this chance now to acknowledge what happened 
and preserve culture by sort of rediscovering what it means for our own families. You know, I had a great grandfather who did come back and forth several times. And as I went through the dual citizenship process, I didn't really fully appreciate what that meant. I kind of had this romantic thought in my head of like, okay, he came over on a boat and everything was great and he earned some money and gave us a better life. But he was taking these two week voyages back and forth and working in horrible conditions at great personal sacrifice that I can more fully appreciate now. And so as part of this documentary, I'm gonna go back and for the first time, see my ancestral hometown, which I've never been to. They have my birth certificate. They have my marriage certificate. They have my son's birth certificate. It's a town of 12,000 people near Pescara called Penne. And for the first time, I hope on camera, I'm going to go see City Hall. I'm going to go see some of the buildings that um, you know, are in the story of my family. And I think we all have that opportunity now in, in our generation to recover some of what's been lost and to retell these stories that haven't yet been fully told. I agree with you. I think that that's a big part of the Italian-American experience. I actually think that the biggest impact is the 1924 legislation against immigration with a you know creation of a quota system, which in many ways was aimed at our community. I think it cleaves the umbilical cord between the sort of birds of passage era of our experience and the you're here to stay because you can't get back in and now you got to assimilate. And I think that that sort of 1924 and through the war is the real turning point in who we are. And I think a lot of people in our generation, we're the same age, have had similar experiences going back and reclaiming language, refinding ancestry that wasn't spoken about. I, I do think there is a lot of trauma in the Italian-American experience that doesn't get unpackaged and doesn't get explored. And I think it's very important for a project like this to do that, particularly from that perspective. I'm, I'm really encouraged to see that the crux of this project is exploring the impact on today's community and not just reporting history. Because if we were just reporting history and sort of kvetching about how bad the situation was, it's not as impactful to me as to say, okay, let's understand why this terrible situation still impacts us today. I'm, I'm really impressed by that thesis and looking forward to seeing the end result. And uh, I hope very much that our audience out there takes the time to understand that these kind of things do impact who we are and who we've become. And I think it's a great and worthy uh, cause. But Zach, since I've been driving you up a wall so much and you want to throw a rotten tomato at me, I'm going to come out and tell everybody they have to see your movie and they have to cut you a check. You have a GoFundMe? Kickstarter. What is it? Kickstarter. Kickstarter. We got to go out and say Zach, because Zach is an Italian intellectual and he's and we have to go out and support what Zach's doing. And you got to come back after you go to your hometown and we're going to tell more people they got to go out, they got to watch your film and they got to support you. I, I want to come back on after the film is out. I want Pat to watch it. And then Absolutely. we're going to hear Pat's review of my film while I'm a guest on the show. I'm going to be, I'm going to be live, for, live for your commentary. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I think that's the best way to do it. Because at the end of the day, these are the kind of conversations we do have to be having. You know, we can't have that's a what, hagiographical. No, we're Italian. And then we go out and have a yeah. drink. That's the best yes, thing. Yes, play bocce That's together. Play bocce, make love, eat. We're tired. You scream. Zach, we're talking about you coming back when the film's over. When's the goal for this thing to be available to an, uh, an audience? When do you foresee that people are going to be able to see this? Well, you know, we're excited. We're turning the film into Neoff and the Russo Brothers Film Forum uh, on September 1st. They're going to use it as part of their gala in the fall. And then we're already talking to distributors and seeing um, how we can get it to wider audiences. After that, there's talks that, you know, based on the timeline of the film and, and how to complete it, if it's 
shorter. We will maybe look to expand it and, and we'll see. We're going to be taking Pat's input as we go and <laughs> bringing him on as executive producer. Um, I like this, kid. We're going to raise money, Zach. We're going to raise the money. <laughs> so, no, I mean, people can follow along. They'll, they'll go see it. And if you go to the Kickstarter now, there's a trailer so you can see kind of what we're putting together. You can hear some audio of a couple of people we've interviewed. There's one guy in there whose story is really interesting. Just briefly he talks about uh, his father who kind of saw his business failed after the Sigma of being an enemy alien placed under restrictions and evacuated. And because of his status, he couldn't cross the street to go to his fruit market. And he said it kind of broke his father, had drastic long lasting effects to his mother. And one of the interesting parts of the story is through these whole experiences, he changed from his Italian name to an Americanized name. And then I noticed in talking to him that now he's chosen to go and be known by his Italian name again. He's 92 years old. Wow. So I can't wait to ask him about that part of what it means to be an Italian American. Who does he identify as? Is he an Italian? Is he an American? And how has that affected the choice of his name, which is such a strong part of our identity? And we're going to be talking to, you know, lots of other people. There's a woman, Rose, who was 12 years old when all this happened. Her father was a U.S. citizen building ships for the Defense Department, but her mom was a non citizen. So Rose, 12 years old was one of 2000 people evacuated from Pittsburgh, California. So we can talk about, you know, Pat's point of view and whether a 12 year old girl was uh, working for the Mussolini army or not, but these are the stories we're going to be digging into and can't wait to finish telling them. I always love the fact that the American national sporting hero at the time is Joe DiMaggio. He's off fighting in the war and his parents are basically bankrupted as they're fishing boat is docked uh, under suspicion. There's a dichotomy there that you just can't wrap your head around. It's like you said, somebody who's going to an internment camp gets the news on that day that their son and nephew were killed in action. I mean, it's just, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think that this is an important chapter to tell. And I think there's going to be a lot of young Italian American kids who see this and learn about it for the first time. And I think support Zach, open up your wallet. You want Italian-American content, you want Italian-American intellectual study and pursuit of it and expose of our culture and our heritage, you, this kid can't do it alone. These things are expensive. It's not magic. It doesn't come out of the sky. That's why you got to open up your wallet. Even if it's 10s or 20s, that's how you build an army. Five dollars, he'll take whatever you got. Yep. Get on Kickstarter, take out that credit card, and support Zach. And I'll tell you what, guys, the first 50 bucks that comes in is going to pay for my therapy session after Pat beat me up. Yeah, today. yeah. No, Zach, <laughs> I love you. I love you huh? Can I have your therapist's phone number? No. <laughs> I love you, Zach. I send you a million kisses. <laughs> I'm blowing the <laughs> Zach, really do appreciate it. And uh, we're going to support from the show. Absolutely. And we want to be a part of what you're doing. And uh, we want to be a part of this great success in telling an important story. So you can certainly look for our for support from the Italian American podcast. And hopefully those of you out there in the audience want to get behind this great work, too. So I've really enjoyed this. I hope it encourages you to watch the movie and dig even further into the many unexplored chapters of our history. That's what we're here for. That's why we have the show. So from all of us at the Italian American podcast, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Dun,